1: I'm not necessarily talking about, you know, the general chaos or political discord or anything like that. I'm just saying, you know, sometimes it occurs to me, you know, Brian, you may have actually overcommitted yourself a little bit here and there. This is one of those days that I'm feeling it acutely. But... I appreciate you tuning in, and I'm going to try to make it worth your while. Thank you for tuning into the show, and thank you to the sponsors who make this possible on a day-to-day basis. I hope you'll find the time to do some business with them. They include lifesavingfood.com, tmcpnation.com, quiltandso.com, and also Ironsight Brewing Company. That's ironsightbc.com. So I'm, I'm going to just go out on a limb here and ponder the question, why would you listen to a program like this or anything that even remotely sounds like this, right? Here I am, this reformed red meat thrower, now trying to to be a source of truth and light, uh, at least to the best of my ability. It's not like I'm the fount of truth. I'm just somebody who's really putting forth his best effort. Why do I do it? Why do you do what you do? Why do you seek out the information you seek out? I have a hunch it has something to do with... Changing the world, and I don't mean some Pollyanna-ish, well, I'm going to make everybody friends, and we're all going to sit around and sip tea together with our pinkies extended. I'm talking about something much more substantial, and that is to, to change the world by being a good person. That's the way you change the world. And it's, you know, a lot of times we're told, well, if you want to change things, you got to work from within the system. So much of what we understand is framed in terms of politics. I mean, look, it's an election year. How much of what we hear about today is entirely based on, well, according to this poll and according to that politician or this news story or this political race, here's the way the world is. And yet, if truth be told, I don't really care that much about the politics. I don't really care that much about the politicians. But I definitely want to be a good influence in the world. I'm not just going to sit back and passively, you know, take whatever the world is dishing out. Well, what, what choice do I have? You know, nobody gave me permission to, to do anything. So I want to start out today sharing with you a commentary from Isaac Morehouse. Now, this is from, wow, this one is actually from about eight years ago. About how to not change the world. I felt like this was an especially insightful bit of commentary. How not to change the world. Isaac Morehouse says, don't run for class president. Don't go to HOA meetings. Don't join a committee. Don't get involved in any political campaigns. The reason why? All of these activities are about reform. Get into the institution, play by its rules, and try to make it behave differently than it wants to. That sounds about right. Well, Isaac says, no, forget this approach. It sucks. And here are four reasons why. Number one, it makes you less happy. And he asks, have you ever been to a town hall meeting? Life is too short to endure such horrors. The worst life to live is a boring one. The machinations of every political institution are stale and boring and full of self-serious processes, rather procedures, (laughs) practitioners. Your every moment is too valuable to suffer through it. It's inhumane. So if Robert's rules of order are relevant to any effort you're involved in, he says, get out now and go build something new. I know. Wait a minute. I'm supposed to be more active. I'm supposed to be a more involved citizen. Mm, Listen to what else else he has to say. Isaac uh, Morehouse says you can't change the game by playing. Political institutions do one thing best, and that is restrict individual fun and freedom. Now, it's natural to want to reduce the role of these rule-happy entities, but he says you can't win by playing by their rules. You can't vote your way to a system where votes no longer curtail progress. Trying to reduce the role of the state by engaging in politics is like trying to put a casino out of business by playing blackjack there. Oh, I have it figured out. I'll beat the house. No, you won't. They want you to think that. They want you to keep playing. Abiding by house rules is no way to protest or change them, especially when the house gets a little richer every time you do. He says, if you don't want the casino to keep luring people in, don't go in yourself. Build something better that people want to go to instead. Oh, that's a pretty significant shift in how to approach things. Next, he says, progress always comes from without. Think about this. Political institutions are reactive. They wait until the world forces them, and then they change. Now, if humanity is a car, these institutions are the brakes, able to stop progress but never able to create it. If you want to get to a new destination... You need the accelerator. Accelerators are the new ideas and products and services that forge ahead, paying no mind to the consensus-seeking bureaucrats nested in the status quo. Accelerators don't care about argument nor protest. They care about creation. They build the world they want to live in instead of hoping to prevent its decay. And finally, he points out there is no permanence when you play by the rules or when you try to reform within the system. He says the great thing about innovation is that it only needs to happen once. That painful, grueling, childbirth-like experience of the creative act or eureka moment is born out of imagination, hard work, and courage. If the result is of any value to the world, it lasts forever and serves as the stepping stone to still greater innovations. So as an example of this, he says the wheel was invented once. No one has to reinvent it. Its world-improving powers are permanent and irreversible. Any apparent victory within a political structure is fleeting by definition and design. You align all the powers and elites and in interests just so after years of butt-numbing meetings and pompous proclamations from people you'd never want to have a beer with, but now you must woo and coddle. You have your mandate or constituency or whatever other serious-sounding label you slap on the gaggle of interest vying for a win within the House rules. You get your way. Hooray! Until the next month or year or election cycle... When the new interests or the new interest groups outmaneuver you, and the tables turn in an instant. By the way, you saw what that looked like on January twentieth of 2021. The moment Biden was installed in office, what were some of the first executive orders that he he uh, signed and, and what were some of the first policies that he instituted, right? He was undoing every possible thing he could that Trump had done during the previous four years. That's, that's what Isaac's talking about here. Everything you created in your coalition vanishes, along with all the money you convinced people to throw at it. The same tiny sliver of ground must be re-won each time as if from scratch. Only then do you realize that broader social forces created by the outsiders accelerating humanity are the master, not the servant, to these stale political institutions that apply their rusty brakes against all odds. So what's his advice? Well, he says, go out and build something. Build something instead. Exit. Go your own way. Forget the suits and speeches and posturing and canvassing and internal climbing and deal-making. No, Isaac Morehouse says, go build your wildest dream. Imagine and create things that excite you. Move to a place that doesn't suck. Create a job that's not boring. Live a life you want to live. He says, don't wait for the world to change or beg for permission to let it evolve. Go change your own world and the rest will follow. I felt like this was an especially good commentary. It's Again, this was uh, published back in 2016 on the Foundation for Economic Education's website, fee.org. But Isaac Morehouse is correct. I've always liked his take on, on things. I, th- I think this guy's a pretty fresh thinker, and he, he makes a whole lot of sense. But when he says, stop trying to work within the system to change things, I think he has a point. Build something better. The system that you don't like, the one that has its boot on the back of your neck, you don't have to stand up and fight it tooth and nail, pitchforks or swords or guns or whatever. Make something that other people will come to and that makes that system itself obsolete. But it can't be done. The system's too powerful. Hey, I look at the homeschooling movement as a good example of what happens when parents become determined. You know what? I'm not sending my kid to that mind laundry And they create something better. And from that, especially since I mentioned the FEE website, FEE.org, F-E-E.org, you really should spend some time on there and read Carrie McDonald's articles. Carrie is one of those wonderful innovators who didn't wait for permission to go out there and help people create something different pertaining to their children's education. It's not just homeschooling. Now there are different school pods and different educational approaches. You know, you're only limited by imagination as to what could be done to provide a better educational experience for your kids than trundling them off, you know, kind of at bayonet point, right? It is mandatory, it's compulsory, you know, to the, to the most, uh, to the closest government school. You don't have to do that. So that's just one small example, but that's the kind of thinking I would like to encourage you and myself, you know, to, to embrace because that's how we will make things change. And no, it's not going to change everything in one fell swoop. That's important that we don't fall into that trap of thinking, well, it's all going to change at once. It's, It's not going to change at once. The change will be slow. To most people, it may be imperceptible. But look, you get your life in order and you become a truly excellent person. Okay, the world has changed as a result of you being one excellent person. You also have influence on people around you in that you inspire them to step up and make similar changes in their lives. Is it as satisfying as clicking your fingers and everything falls into place? Eh, Probably not. But it's honestly come about to, to, to where the change is real, it's lasting, it's genuine.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Again, I appreciate you uh, finding the time to at least consider some of the different thoughts and messages shared on The Brian Hyde Show. I don't mind uh, marching out of step with the rest of society, frankly. I've seen the direction that a lot of society is headed. I don't really want to go there. So if, if you're looking for some interesting fellow travelers, uh, well, pull up a chair and, and join us. I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm just here to offer some uh, some different perspectives you're probably not going to find elsewhere. Now, passing along principles and practices of liberty to the next generation, in other words, teaching our kids to be able to to resist attempts to uh, uh, domesticate them, that's that's a very laudable thing, but it's not getting any easier. I want to share with you some thoughts from Doug Casey in an interview with International Man about raising free-thinking children among societal madness. Doug Casey always has a really good take, so I think you'll appreciate this, especially if you're trying to think, okay, how can I use my influence to positively influence, you know, the young people in my life? International Man starts by noting, TVs, movies, popular culture, government schools, and many factors mold the minds of today's kids. Unfortunately, these institutions are rotten to the core. What are parents and children up against today? Doug Casey says, well, it's very serious. Once upon a time, going to school and watching a movie or a TV program wouldn't endanger your kid's moral character, but now they do. And he says, I ask myself, when did the rot, or where did the rot start? Where, when did it begin? Now, there's an old saying, tough times breed strong men. Strong men result in good times. Good times result in weak men, and so forth. He says, I'm afraid that pretty much describes what's happened with the U.S. We're following the path of all great empires in the past. After Athens became rich and prosperous, they fomented the Peloponnesian War, which resulted in their collapse. It happened to the Roman Republic, which fell away from its founding virtues, transformed into an empire, and became dissipated and soft. It's happened to Europe after it became rich and prosperous. Its the, its conquest of scores of colonies has come back to bite it. So when civilizations become rich and arrogant, they lose their moral foundations. They become hypocritical and corrupt. They don't want to admit it. The elites may not even recognize it, but a spiritual cancer becomes pervasive, and they seem to suffer a loss of self-confidence. Perversely, as the foundations of society collapse, its superstructure, the government, grows and becomes more important. The society becomes bureaucratized. That transfers risk and responsibility away from individuals and traditional institutions, placing them onto the state this has happened to America. Once upon a time, America really was different from and better than any country in history, or at least any other country in history. Why? Well, because it was the only country explicitly founded on the principles of individual liberty, economic, and social freedom. And that's all being washed away now. The reality has been replaced by worthless state operatives crowing, the America is the exceptional country as a justification for crimes. In fact... America has devolved into the U.S. The U.S., most regrettably, is just another of 200 states covering the face of the globe like a skin disease. Doug Casey says the country has been demoralized, the average guy has been taught our basic values are evil, and he questions whether the ideas of Western civilization and America even have a right to exist. Americans have outsourced their ability to think and make moral decisions to CNN or the New York Times. If they think for themselves, they can be canceled. They've outsourced their right to defend themselves to the police. If they do defend themselves, they can be jailed or bankrupted. Everywhere, adults are treated like children. So they're increasingly acting like children. So the next question posed to him is, well, in the past few years, the indoctrination of children into woke and other bent views has accelerated. Where is this trend headed? Listen to Doug Casey's answer. He says, St. Ignatius... Loyola, who founded the Jesuits, and Lenin, who founded the Soviet Union, both said words to the effect that if you can get control of the kids for a generation, you can warp their minds for a lifetime. And what's crazy is they were both absolutely right. Wokeism has actually replaced traditional moral and religious values in the West at this point. It's a trend that's been in motion for decades, and it's accelerating. Trends in motion tend to stay in motion until a crisis is reached, at which point anything can happen. In any event, the majority of youth in America and the West have been totally captured by the notions of wokeism, race consciousness, intersectionality, LGBTQ, canceling, political correctness, socialism, and a whole panoply of other psychological and moral aberrations. Now, his point is, it's going to be hard to reverse this trend. And he says, my guess is that we'll have a really serious crisis before we can know the answer. Next question that's posed to him is, how do parents with young children opt out of this growing insanity? Yeah, this is where you're going to want to really pay attention. Doug Casey says, I think it's important that they opt out. At least if they really care about their kids. If your kids are in government schools, you should get them out. It's as if if you're letting them swim in a cesspool. Amish kids are homeschooled and they have few of the problems afflicting normal society. No, you don't have to swear off automobiles and electricity, but you can insulate them from the really destructive influences. Helicopter parenting to keep kids safe can turn them into hothouse pansies. Of course, you don't want them to grow up with wolves, although that worked for Romulus and Remus, the founders of Rome. He says, although I'm no fan of Islam and the precepts of Mohammed, it can be said that kids growing up in that culture have some advantages today. The fact is that children in backward Mohammedan countries aren't influenced to do drugs, disrespect their elders and their culture, mutilate their bodies, or a dozen other things subtly or overtly encouraged in the West. Most of the values imparted in their madrasas are antithetical to classical Western virtues, and the knowledge they gain is mostly useless, but he says at least they're taught some virtues and believe in something as opposed to nothing. In the West... Kids are half-heartedly taught reading, writing, and arithmetic, but they don't get much familiarity with concepts like right and wrong, or good and evil. If they do, they certainly don't get any, any instruction in critical thinking or the Socratic method. They're on their own to put the world in perspective, and most fail. They wind up acting on feelings and emotions, not logic and reason. What values they get come from the woke media and the schools. But the schools are intellectual and moral crime scenes, he says, run by teachers who grew up in the system. Their paychecks ensure they promote it robotically. The higher the grade level, the more likely the teacher will be a progressive or a Marxist of some stripe. Since charity begins at home, Doug Casey says you should get your kids out of government schools or, for that matter, out of any kind of conventional school at the earliest age possible. So International Man then follows up by saying, okay, homeschooling has become increasingly popular, especially after the COVID hysteria. What's your take on this trend? Doug says the only way to solve this problem is by homeschooling your kids or uniting with other parents who share libertarian views and hiring a tutor with both academic competence and the right values. Your kids are your most important asset. You shouldn't trust them to government bureaucrats who will indoctrinate them with bad values and misinformation. Teachers unions control the teachers and the values of the National Education Association, which is the largest teachers union, are not just adjacent to, but worse than those of the Teamsters or the United Auto Workers. In addition, school subjects your kids to hanging out with young yahoos who will have picked up lots of bad habits and ideas. Don't worry about them being socialized. There's plenty of time for that after they've learned right from wrong and are capable of independent, critical thinking. If they're swimming in a cesspool, they're going to be contaminated. So, next he's asked, opting out of the traditional schooling options is an excellent start, but is it enough? How can parents best ensure their kids become independent, free-thinking, capable adults as the U.S. and the West accelerate their decline in the years ahead? Now, Doug says it's not enough to just opt out of government at other conventional schools. A positive alternative is critical. Ron Paul has a program for schooling kids, homeschooling kids, rather. His platform makes it easy for you. Tom Woods does a lot of excellent work in this area, too. If they follow programs like Ron Paul and Tom Woods' layout, by the time they're ready to go to college, they'll already know far more than the typical college grad. The fact is, today, college is just not not just a gigantic misallocation of four of the most valuable years of your life and a huge amount of money. It's much worse. These kids are spending time partying at what amounts to a five-star resort, drinking, chasing girls, being corrupted and indoctrinated. The alternative is to put together a plan for what a young man or woman should do over those four years, and that is become a modern-day Renaissance man capable of dealing with all aspects of the real world. Doesn't that seem like some pretty sound advice? Check out my show notes for the uh, link to the article. This
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Look, I hope you're picking up a positive vibe because that's what I'm laying down. And I want you to be more positive of what you stand for than simply what upsets you or what you're against. And there's lots of that to see every direction we look. But um, I'll tell you, I've, I've, been a, I've been a big proponent of food storage for many, many years. My longtime listeners will attest to this. In fact, sometimes I, I'm probably pretty obsessive about it. And just by way of explanation, I caught the vision almost exactly the time that my oldest daughter was born, which it turns out was 30 years ago. She's got a birthday coming up here in just a little over a month. And it was with her arrival on the scene, right, that uh, that promotion to, to dad, that's when I felt, well, I felt two things. First of all, I felt uh, the most immense amount of love, and uh, humility that I've ever had flow over me. You know, the moment she arrived, you know, I, I saw her take her first breath and start to cry, and, and uh, someone asked me, hey, Dad, they had a video camera. Dad, say something. I couldn't even talk. I was so choked up. Just, you know, tears of joy. That was the first thing. But then the second thing I felt was this immense responsibility and the realization you are responsible for providing for and protecting and, and making sure that this young life is being guarded and and watched over. And that's when I got serious about food storage. So for 30 years, I have not just talked the talk, I've walked the walk. I've got a great article here from Brandon Smith. This was uh, published uh, originally at Prepper Beef. I don't know if that's a sponsor or or what, but it's a great article because he talks about from trucker boycotts to grid-down scenarios, there's just one way to survive a food crisis, and that is to have a long-term food storage plan. Not just storing food, I would say a means of producing your own food as well. But let's share some of the high points from his article. Brandon says, if there's one reality that Americans need to accept, it's that every system has a breaking point, and there are no exceptions. Human beings are built to adapt, and this has given us incredible resilience, but it also means we have a tendency to wait too long to fix the parts of our society that are broken instead we let the problems build and fester until sadly the final straw falls and everything comes crashing down now sometimes this collapses by chance and sometimes it's by design in either case the catalyst is the same the public does not prepare and they don't take action to correct the people creating the crisis until it's too late now in our modern era of invasive technology economic weakness nuclear weapons and biowarfare, this is an unsustainable model We can no longer ignore threats on instability in the hopes that they'll go away or that governments will defuse the danger, nor can we simply pick up the pieces over and over again after each calamity. He says there may come a time where the mess is so big, we won't be able to clean it up. People must plan ahead. They must stop tolerating the notion of passive involvement in the mechanisms that influence their lives and future. Now, Brandon says, I often write about hypothetical trigger events and breakdown scenarios because a large number of people still need to be educated on how fragile the Western world truly is right now. For example, any significant disruption to supply chains and logistics at this time would be devastating for a large number of Americans or Europeans. Now, in the past couple of weeks, there's been a just in the last couple of weeks alone, actually, there's been a rising tide of political discontent among U.S. truckers, the very people that handle over 70 percent of all freight in our country. They have threatened to boycott a number of Democrat-controlled cities, primarily New York City, over a host of issues and complaints, including the legal treatment of Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump. Now, this boycott may not play out in the near-term you know, watch for talk of boycotts to escalate in November around election time. But the potential is on the table. And he says it's an important learning moment. What would happen if the U.S. freight system actually stopped? U.S. supply chains operate on a just-in-time freight schedule, meaning all the grocery stores in your area will carry just enough backstock, backstock rather, to serve normal business operations for about a week when the next fleet of trucks arrive. The just-in-time structure is the lifeblood of the supply chain. And most American cities would fall into chaos after one week without it. Trains and railway networks handle about 28% of total freight and have struggled through a long state of decline. So the point is there's no realistic alternative to trucks. Now FEMA and the National Guard could try to field drivers to fill the void, but he says consider this. There are currently 3.5 million freight drivers in the U.S. today. And that number is at least 80,000 drivers short of what's actually needed. Now, do you think the government or military is going to be able to come up with enough scabs to undermine a trucker strike against blue cities? There's no chance. Brandon Smith says, I have to say, I'm not opposed to the concept of a trucker boycott. It's a peaceful redress of grievances, and all peaceful measures should be exhausted first. All they have to do is refuse to take on shipments to places like New York City or Washington, D.C. Many of them are subcontractors that can pick and choose whatever jobs they want. However... He says we need to keep in mind how terrified the Canadian government was during their trucker protests. So terrified, they labeled the truckers as terrorists and started freezing the bank accounts of anyone supporting them. This action was against their own constitutional laws. That's how effectively frightening a freight shutdown is to politicians. Huh. I want to file that one away for future reference. Even so, Brandon says... If the U.S. government responded in the same way as Canada, it still wouldn't do much to stop a boycott. Tensions are extremely high, and it's only a matter of time before conflict erupts in one form or another. The political left and their globalist handlers have offered no indication whatsoever that they intend to back away from their current destructive path. Something has to give. Why not a trucker protest or red state protest cutting off blue regions from vital resources? Unfortunately, there are still a number of conservatives and independents living in these cities that could be negatively affected by a freight shutdown along with their progressive neighbors. So maybe this maybe the strike never comes to fruition or everything will continue on as normal or maybe not. The point is anything can happen And the way our economy and supply chains currently function. They're not going to pass muster for much longer. Brandon Smith says the average American has around one week's worth of food in their pantry at any given time. With FEMA response in place, a rationing system would be instituted over the course of several weeks, probably using a digital tracking method, much like an EBT card. And he says, make no mistakes. There will be strings attached to any government rationing program. Do you have the latest COVID booster? No ration card until your shots are up to date. Uh, We see that you have registered firearms. You'll need to turn those in before you can get rations. We see that you've made problematic comments in your social media history. You may not be eligible. Isn't it crazy how plausible that, uh, that kind of scenario is? Brandon says it takes around 7 to 10 days of zero food supply for panic to set into a population when people finally realize things are not going to go back to normal. It takes two weeks for starvation to take a physical toll and three weeks for people to start dying. Riots and looting are inevitable. But that won't solve the problem if there's no food to loot. Now, some people will argue that they only need to not be where the shortages are, but there's no way to predict this. In the case of the conservative trucker boycotts, the targeted areas are obvious, but that's just one scenario. And there are a host of events that could cause a crippled supply chain in both rural and urban areas, including a mass immigration crisis or nationwide grid-down scenario. So his point is the only viable solutions are to secure a long-term food storage plan. And don't forget the protein, because Western governments have become increasingly hostile against animal agriculture these days. So food storage for, for each family for at least a year is essential. It doesn't have to start there. Even one month of food will give you an edge over most of the population and will ensure you don't have to go begging to FEMA. But eventually a year's supply or more is necessary, along with community organization for mutual security. That will give you time to establish a more permanent and sustainable food plan after the worst has happened. He says you can see the storm that a logistical breakdown would cause. In 30 days or less, a city like New York could be brought to its knees even with government intervention. On a national scale, regardless of the cause, the result would be about the same. Ultimately, there are two kinds of people in the wake of these events. And that's the people who planned ahead. And everyone else. So Brandon Smith says, It's my hope that through education and encouragement, we can convince enough of the populace to prepare so that this large percentage of Americans acts as a redundancy against catastrophe. Leftists won't listen, but maybe the rest of the public will. In other words, the goal is to give the public a natural immunity against supply chain collapse so that when the crisis does strike, the effects will be greatly diminished. I know, on the one hand, it's like, wow, that's kind of scary to think that something like that could happen. But that's just simply acknowledging reality, okay? This isn't hyping it for the sake of now, buy my 12-piece course, you know, or my 12, you know, course, uh, you know, program on, you know, how to become completely independent. Although, frankly, there are some good courses out there that could teach you a lot on that. But the bottom line is, you've got to start by taking care of those who are near and dear to you And that means you've got to be willing to step up and become as self-sufficient as possible. Now, food and storage is just one of those things, right? Medical self-sufficiency is another. What about your mental health? What about your spiritual health? What about your physical health? Economic health, right? Have you found a way to store your wealth that doesn't involve, uh, you know, keeping it in a bank where it could be converted into a digital currency that is available to you at the whim of whoever's in power? Are you starting to see the picture? All right, I've got a link to the article in today's show notes at thebryanhideshow.com. This, the
0: this is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. All right, welcome to our final segment today. Again, I sincerely hope that this is giving you more inspiration to step up and encouragement to take those first difficult steps to becoming a great person. And I mean that in every way. I think back to that uh, commentary from uh, from Doug Casey about if you want to raise free-thinking children, you got to teach them to become, you know, and I'm sorry, this is going to sound sexist, to be a Renaissance man. There are Renaissance women as well, but... People who have skills, people who can think critically, people who can learn, people who can teach. Overspecialization, I think, in some ways has hurt us. But uh, people who go to college, you know, looking for that badge of compliance that's going to open the doors for them to, you know, get into a good job and make lots of money so they can buy lots of toys and then eventually retire and play with their toys until they die. Is that really what's li- what life is all about? I think there's more to it. I think there's purpose for why we're here, and I think a lot of this comes down to catching that vision of personal mission or personal purpose in life that drives us beyond just existing, right? Just being a cog in the machine. In fact, if I could be so bold, I believe every single one of us has a personal, God-given mission. What about people who don't believe in God? Hmm? They, they may feel like it's the universe lining things out for them. Whatever it is, it's theirs and theirs alone. And when they find themselves in that groove where they are pursuing that, that's where they feel like they are in sync with the universe or in harmony with the universe. And it looks different for every single person. That's the good news. This is not the cookie cutter one size all fits approach, one size fits all approach rather that uh, that we see, you know, personified in our public schools and in some cases in our higher education institutions. All right. Having said that, two articles I'd like to direct your attention to, our article of the day is from Jeff Minnick from intellectualtakeout.org, some wonderful thoughts on wealth and contentment. And I, I love this. My friend Mark is is uh, he's one of my dearest friends just because he used to call into my radio show when I was on in Southern Utah uh, doing live radio. He would always call in, and before he said anything, he would always preface it with, "Now I only have a Beaver High School education," but I'm telling you, Mark is one of the best thinkers and most well-rounded people that I know. He posted something the other day that really it, it just jumped out at me because I think it 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 describes a choice that he has made but it also describes a truth that I don't know very many people would recognize if they didn't live it. And it was simply this. He talked about, uh, you know, you can be wealthy by acquiring much or you can be wealthy by desiring little. Mark has chosen to be wealthy by desiring little. In other words, being happy with what you have and appreciating what's around you. And, And he says this with no apology whatsoever. He says, I am richer than I ever dreamed that I would be. And he's right. It's not the material things. It's the the quality of life that he lives. And he has the opportunity to to notice the things, like the stars and the the animals that that come through, you know, the place where he's built his cabin in in what he calls his, his little slice of heaven. Now, maybe that's not for everybody. But I just offer that as an alternative to, well, you know, you... You're not driving a very new car. Your house seems kind of small for the kind of money you should be making right now. Nobody gets to take any of that stuff with them when they go. But you do get to take the things that bring you joy, or at least the joy that things have brought you. There's a a better way of saying that. That gets to go with you. So if you have found joy in all the splendor of nature, if you have found joy in serving and cheering other people, If you found joy in finding understanding to some of the questions that uh, mankind has been, you know, examining as long as we've been around, that's an essential part of you. Not something to be loaded on a trailer and driven off to the dump after you've passed away. All right. I I hope you'll read Jeff Minnick's article on wealth and contentment. I would want you to be content. I would also want you to feel wealthy. And I'm convinced it's a state of mind. Some, I know people who have immense amounts, amounts of money available to them. They can have whatever they want, but they don't feel wealthy. Or they go into debt to try to maintain a lifestyle, keep up appearances. Well, nobody will mistake me for one of those people who didn't succeed, but they're unhappy. Why? Well, they're carrying back, back-breaking loads of debt, and, and it's for show. It's for other people's approval. It's not for what makes them glad. Got to know the difference. One final thought, and this is an article I picked up off AmericanThinker.com, The Benefits of Hardship. This is from J.B. Shirk. He says, sometimes hardship is the driving force for necessary change. One of the most valuable lessons experiences taught him is that initial victories can degrade into bitter defeats, while heartbreaking defeats can blossom into unexpected victories. And he says that has led him to see history not as some linear progression of events following a logical rhythm toward human happiness, but rather as a complex system with repeating cycles, new variables, and endlessly moving parts. He says, I have come to realize that almost everything in life, whether good or bad, should be approached with a healthy dose of wait and see circumspection. Presidential elections offer ample support for this proposition. During the month of uncertainty following the 2000 contest when Al Gore refused to concede to George Bush, George W. Bush, every hanging chad on Florida's butterfly ballots seemed important. Reclaiming the White House after Bill Clinton's sex, campaign finance, and Chinese bribery scandals felt like a critical course correction for America's future. When Islamic supremacists attacked us at home the following year, having President Bush in the Oval Office, as opposed to the global warming obsessed inventor of the internet, in air quotes, was a huge relief. We had a man willing to make difficult choices and take the fight to an enemy that had long sought our annihilation. He was the right man for those chaotic and trying times. Right? Now I do have to throw this in as an aside. Not a fan of George W. Bush... Functionally, I don't know that the man was any different than Bill Clinton in the sense that he still saw government uh, as an ever-expanding blessing to be imposed, not just on us, but the world in general. Now, listen to what, uh, what J.B. Shirk points out next. Right, We were celebrating Bush becoming the, the president, but as the years passed, he says, the answer became less clear as to whether he was the right man for chaotic and trying times. While the Patriot Act broadened the toolkit for tracking down foreign threats, its nefarious use as a domestic surveillance weapon took a sledgehammer to Americans' privacy. Rhetorical battles against Islamic supremacy morphed into another politically correct surrender in which Americans were required to speak of Islam as a religion of peace. Fighting the terrorists overseas somehow meant we were also expected to open our doors to millions of new refugees. So what originally felt like a robust offensive strategy for eliminating hostile threats transformed into an endless military occupation on the other side of the world with little in the name of long-term strategy. Why were Americans fighting in Afghanistan and Iraq? Well, if you asked a warrior, he was there for 9-11 payback and to end the threat of Islamic terrorism. However, the official line from the White House evolved into some inscrutable notion that Americans must put themselves in harm's way so that ancient tribal cultures could magically become stable democracies that valued human rights. And that strange vision didn't make sense to anybody but the politicians in D.C. Now, I'm going to skip ahead here just a little bit. Look, the war in Iraq was a huge mistake. It had nothing whatsoever to do with... 9-11, it had nothing whatsoever to do with protecting us and protecting our rights. In fact, if anything, we are less free today because of, of the invasion of Iraq and the invasion of Afghanistan. Not to mention, you know, the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan. It needed to happen, but it was done in such a way that it put billions upon billions of dollars of weapons into the hands of the very same people that ostensibly we sent troops to kick out. After 20 years of fighting the Taliban... The Taliban is in power and empowered with, uh, you know, a lot of good American weaponry. So let me get to the point here of of hardships. J.B. Shirk says, let me say bluntly, if not for all the madness we have endured the last few years, we would never have reached a moment when so many Americans can see plainly the tyrannical menace festering in D.C., Without the deep state's in-your-face counterattacks meant to permanently silence Trump voters, for instance, people would not understand how serious the threats of censorship, surveillance, financial coercion, and ideological targeting are today. Without Donald Trump's refusal to toe the line, uniparty politicians would still be gaslighting Americans into believing there's no invasion at the border. Without a national politician pursuing America-first America policies that seek to strengthen America's economy and self-sufficiency, globalism would not have become a dirty word. He says, in America today, the fight for individual liberty has returned as a vital political issue. The struggles for religious freedom, parental rights, and the protection of life have become essential issues. Sometimes, he says, the worst hardships are the unexpected driving force for long overdue change. Is that called hitting rock bottom? Not sure I want to find out what that's like, but I think we may all get an answer on this in the not-so-distant future. Check out my show notes. These are the show notes for February 29th, 2024. You can find them at thebryanhideshow.com. This
0: is The Brian Hyde Show.